The greatest effect of our sin is not failing to meet moral standards or getting everything right. The greatest effect of our sin is losing access to the presence of God. This is what we were made for. We are not random cells floating and all of a sudden happened. We were created with a distinct purpose to know God and to enjoy him forever, as the Westminster Catechism would say. You could say that the fall means separation. The fall equals separation. The fall isn't about us doing now bad things, but what I like to tell everyone who comes to Alpha when we talk about sin is the fall means we do dead things now. We are spiritually dead in our trespasses and sins, full deserving of the wrath of God. That is the greatest effect of our sin. That is the greatest effect of the fall from Genesis 3. But it's also what makes our time here on Sunday mornings and our time as we gather together so important and so unique. Because, as I just said, once we were dead in our sins, but now we have made, been made alive with Christ and grafted into this family called the church, uh, not for the sake of meeting our list of needs, but entering into the presence of Almighty God. And what I love about our passage today is that the Feast of Trumpets is a call back to worship. It's an invitation to enter into the gathering with a renewed vision for how we do church. A renewed vision away from the idea that as we come to church, we're here for self-help and big takeaways. But the sacred gathering of the church is where the children of God meet their triune God and where the people of God prepare for the presence of God. Amen? Amen. And that's what we're going to be looking at today. We've been in a series uh, that we've called Eat, Drink, and Rejoice, uh, going through the Feast of Israel, and they'll be uh, uh, on the screen here. Uh, we've looked at rest, redemption, cleansing, and resurrection, and, and Dane took us through the Holy Spirit, or the Spirit, uh, last week. And today, we are looking at Rosh Hashanah. Rosh Hashanah, I've been practicing that all week long, and if I got it wrong... Please don't tell me. Um, just give me a little grace. We're going to be talking about the gathering today. But I had to ask with just a few verses in Leviticus, why is this feast significant? Why is it significant? Well, first it celebrates, it's celebrated on the first day of the seventh month. And now not all numbers are significant in the Bible, but the number seven kind of carries a special connotation. It, it means perfection. It means holiness. Just as the seventh day of the week is holy, so too the seventh month is marked as special. It's marked as the Sabbath month. This assertion is based on more than mere numbers. The seventh month carried the three feasts or festivals, trumpets, day of atonement, and tabernacles. The Feast of Trumpets isn't an opportunity, is an opportunity for the people of God to prepare themselves for the holiest of months on the Jewish calendar. It's also, if you consider the trumpet significance, now admittedly, if you go back and you look at the Hebrew word for trumpet, you can't find it, but the blast presupposes the blowing of a trumpet. Elsewhere in the Old Testament, the trumpet is associated with God's power or his presence. And as you'll see in a picture that'll come up here on the screen uh, with our very well-dressed trumpet player, I don't know if they looked that good back in the day, 
but that's a cool, cool robe. It's uh, often it's blown as a musical uh, prayer to acknowledge or request divine help. It's blown, and what it's saying is, God, we need you. Knowing that this prayer will be answered. At the beginning of the agricultural year, the blowing of a trumpet is an expectation, a prayer to God that marks the passing of one season and anticipation of a new one. It's, it's a lot like our January 1st. January 1 comes around and we feel a sense of refreshment, a, friend, a sense of this is new. We got a new start. Every month the trumpet would blow and this would be their new year. Finally, the trumpet blast was a call for people to respond. The people in the field, when they heard the blast from a man just like this, when they heard the blast of a trumpet, would stop everything they are doing in the temple. And a lot of it isn't just because they hear the sound, but this got every aspect of a person's senses. They heard it, but they also felt the reverberating sound of the trumpet, and it stopped them dead in their tracks, and they knew now is the time to prepare for God's presence. Now, Leviticus doesn't give us a ton about this particular festival, so if you would go to Numbers chapter 29, and it's going to give us a better idea, kind of double-clicking on it and seeing what exactly is this feast and what does it entail. Numbers 29 verses 1 through 6 says this, On the first day of the seventh month, you shall have a holy convocation. In other words, you shall have a holy gathering. You shall not do any work, ordinary work. It is the day for you to blow the trumpets, and you shall offer a burnt offering for a pleasing aroma to the Lord, one bull from the herd, one ram, seven male lambs, eight lambs a year old without blemish, also their grain offering of wine flour mixed with oil, three-tenths of Anathaphira, I'm going to just go with that, for the bull, two-tenths of the ram, and one-tenth of each of the seven lambs with one male goat for a sin offering to make atonement for you. Besides the burnt offering, the new moon, and its grain offering, and the regular burnt offering, and the grain offering, and the drink offering, according to the rule for them, for a pleasing aroma for food offering to the Lord. I just gave you your new verse for your coffee mug. You're welcome. (laughs) So why is this significant? When they observed the feast, the people did two things. They rested from work and they prepared sacrifices. The trumpet calls the people to prepare for a time later in the month when the high priest would enter into the Holy of Holies, which we'll get into here in a little bit. By resting, they remind themselves that the faithful God alone is their salvation. It demonstrates how God weaves himself into the time frame of the whole of Israel's year, and he is to be worshipped in that time frame all of the time, and he's more important than their work. Hashashan becomes a signpost for Israel. In other words, it's like an invitation to turn away from the voices of the world that shame and threaten that shame threatens, and instead to turn our attention toward God of heaven to remember who we are and, and who we are to Him, beloved, beautiful, and very good. Like a compass pointing to humanity's true north, this feast says that the way to full, flourishing, real life is not about perfect resolutions, 
or anxious attempts to somehow be better. It's about returning home. It's about returning to Sinai, back to Eden, back to the one who creates you and loves you, back into his presence. The people of Israel would turn from their work and gather for a full day of sacrifice and worship. And the big idea was preparation for an even bigger event, the time, the day when the priests would then go into the Holy of Holies. This is a lot like our Advent today. It was preparation. It was getting ready. It was looking forward, but it was also looking backward and reevaluating their commitment to the Lord. The Feast of Trumpets points forward, but it also prepares us and forces us to look backward to the reality that God it would be faithful then, and he's faithful now. The feast calls us to a lifestyle of worship. Now, when I say that, immediately what comes to mind for a lot of you is music, but music is a response to what we worship. We, we don't sing to worship, we worship, and then we sing about it. Worship is a response to revelation. Worship is a response to revelation. We're all worshipers. Whether we do worship Christ, which I hope you do, or we worship football or the next, uh, you know, big career advancement, whatever we value most is what we worship. It's what gets our attention and affections. And when the people of God heard the sound of the trumpet blast, it was a reminder that what could threaten their worship, the fears that they were living with, with they can give those to the one who cares for them. The blast, again, was so loud that it just knocked them dead in the tracks. And it was like God saying, it's time to do a 180 and to gather together in anticipation for what I'm about to do. So I want to look at three ways the Feast of Trumpets gives us a new vision for our lives and for our church gatherings. Three ways the Feast of the Trumpets prepares us for God's presence. Number one, present in the presence of God. It, it gives us access and redefines our aim. And then as we'll see at the end, worship right side up. In verse 23, it says, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying to the people of Israel, saying the seventh month, on the first day of the month, you shall observe a day of solemn rest, a memorial proclaimed with a blast of trumpets, a holy convocation, present in the presence of God. It means putting into practice, whenever possible, a conscious, thankful awareness of God's presence, a meditation on God's word. It, it says, uh, it means observe. In other words, prepare, prepare for something new, something fresh, something better. This was built into the system of God's people, a monthly reminder that you and me are dependent on God. And that's why Sabbath rest is so important for you and for me to practice. It's a weekly reminder that I am completely and totally dependent on God Almighty. We practice his presence, I think, in three ways. And the first way is that we need to grow in increasing awareness of his omnipresence. Two, we become more intentionally present with God. 
And three, the reality is that our worship requires sacrifice. Now, number one, we first need to grow in our awareness of his omnipresence. I love what Deuteronomy says in chapter four. The Lord is God in heaven above and in the earth beneath. There is no other. And then in Jeremiah 23, can a man hide himself in a secret place so that I cannot see him, declares the Lord? Do I not fill the heavens and the earth? And then Acts 17, in him we live and move and have of our being, being present in the presence of God is understanding that our God is an omnipresent God. He's not only holding the cosmos with the span of his hand, but he's everywhere you and I turn. Learning awareness of this, it sounds experiential, but it's reality. We need to grow in our awareness that God is present in the plain stuff of life. It's it's not a mind game. It's a a shift in our focus. It's, it's, It's not a matter of willpower, but a shift in focus that takes mind, body, and soul just as a reverberating blast of the trumpet would do for the people of Israel. Being present in the presence of God takes mind, body, and soul. God is calling Israel to prepare for something, not to get settled into a routine. How many of you hate the routine? Anyone else? It just comes, and then it goes, and then we're back at it again. And it's easy to forget that God is in the routine, that God is in the plain stuff. In fact, you could argue that the reason that God places these things, like Sabbath, into the structure of our schedule is to refresh us and to prepare us and get ready for how God would speak to us in the following week. So we need to become more intentionally present with God. We not only need to acknowledge his omnipresence, but we need to be intentional about being present with God. Now, when I first met my wife, I actually had heard about my wife from a friend, and um, we then later became friends, but when I first heard about her, did I know her? No, I knew about her. But then we became friends, and two years later, as I embarrassed her in the first service, it was a quesadilla, and she was looking great, and that was it for me, and that was the, that was history, like... (laughs) I was like, baby, you make me Mexican food. I'm done. I'm done. I didn't know her until I intentionally spent time with her. We need to intentionally be present, spending time with God. Does that mean, pastor, that that's Bible study and church? Yes, but more. Yes, but more. It's about moving forward toward wholeness in Christ. You know, when the scripture says, be holy as God is holy, a lot of times that scares us because we know our thoughts, we know our records, we know our motivations. But what God is saying is not only be dedicated to me as I am dedicated to you, but what God wants is he wants to move us forward into wholeness because sin has, has, has taken everything away from us. It's fractured the way that we view God, view ourselves, view the world, view creation. And what God is doing when he says to be holy is he's bringing us back into wholeness and he's making us whole and so we need to practice that 
in the presence of Christ. How do we do that? We get away from our destructive habits of our sinful nature. It takes emotional presence. It takes habitual practice. And it means giving more attention to your time with Jesus than anything else. Does that mean neglect my family? Of course not. It means that the time you spend with Jesus should shape the way that you spend your time with your family. Listen, our journey today to wholeness in Christ is not about setting out to find God and applying more knowledge. It's a journey of learning to yield ourselves wholly to God and discovering where he might take us. I love what Paul writes to his protege Titus in chapter two of Titus. He says, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. That's the aim. The Feast of of Trumpets is, is about getting our hearts right and being prepared and ready for God to speak to us. And number three, worship requires sacrifices. We practice the presence of God. We have to understand that worship requires sacrifice. In Numbers chapter, uh, was it 29? Did you see how many times in the Feast of Tabernacles the phrase repeated about the male goat offering? You got it on your coffee mug, so you must know, right? Um, And in fact, the instructions about the burnt offering pertain to this as well. Over and over, we see this repeated language in the passage is emphasized That in worship, we are declaring God to be more important, more valuable than anything else in the world, more important than our work, more important than our time. But we can't actually enter into worship without sacrifice. And you're like, why? I hate to break it to you because we're sinners. And the very fact of act of worshiping God for the Israelites required that the Israelite to acknowledge that he or she is a sinner. To be intentionally present in the presence of God, we have to create habits where I am dependent on God, and as Titus would say, I'm daily renouncing ungodliness. The greatest danger to your worship is your need to be perfect. And why do we want to be perfect? I'm speaking to myself too here. Because we don't want to rely on God's power. We need to be aware of this. And and the biggest reason for placing these rhythms in Israel's calendar is the very one of us, we are one step away from putting our worship in the wrong direction. We are one step away from worshiping an idol. Worship in the wrong direction. I I love what Elise Fitzpatrick says in, in her book, Idols of the Heart. She says this, if you wonder why you choose to worship other gods rather than wholeheartedly devote yourselves to the Lord you love, examine the thoughts and desires that captivate your heart. That's where you'll find the answer to every sin and failure in your life. Don't be deceived into thinking that you need to develop more willpower. She says, and I love it, My sister just puts it down. We need to develop godly thoughts and desires, she says. 
Idolatry is looking to anything other than God for our ultimate comfort, satisfaction, and source of joy. See, when I worship an idol, what I'm saying is, fulfill me, console me, protect me, rule me. You're worthy of my strength, my time, my energy, my affections. Only you can make me more happy. We don't physically bow down to idols anymore, but that's what we're doing in our hearts. I love Tim Keller's four questions on how to identify an idol, and maybe this relates to you. What do our thoughts and imaginations run to? Show me what you do in the dark, and I'll show you your character. How do we spend our money? How do we respond to unanswered prayer? Is it the answered prayer we desire, or is it the God of heaven we desire? What are the most uncontrollable emotions? What are the things that distort your thoughts and actions? Another way of asking the question is, are you seeking to control God through our moral performance to get the results you desire? Do we come to church and worship in order to get the prayer answered? You guys know what I'm talking about? You want to change? You want the healing to come? You want the paycheck to happen, right? You want the new job to come or the college admissions thing to come back in your, in your favor. And so we come to church hoping that if I do good, if I do enough Bible study, if I do enough worship, if I do enough of this, if I do enough of that, then the God of heaven will hear me, see how good I am, and answer the prayer. But the one thing that I learned, and I've shared this story a million times and I won't get into it, but the one thing I've learned from facing two of my family members almost dying, my son and my wife, is that yes, I prayed for healing and I prayed for the results of their healing and I wanted that so much. But what I knew was getting my, answer, my prayers answered wasn't what I need to bank my life on. Amen? I need to bank my life on the rock who is Jesus Christ. Because if I don't get that prayer answered, then what happens? My life is shaken. But my, and my foundation is off. But what if my foundation is Christ? Idolatry is like a cancer. And it grows, has a slow growth. For some of us, we don't see it right away. And sometimes it's even necessary to remove the infected member and we're like a helpless cancer patient waiting slowly from a diseased heart. But God is the great physician who removes our diseased, dead heart and replaces it with a new heart. Or as Paul would say in 2 Corinthians, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, some of you are saying it with me, he is a new creation. What does he say? The old has passed away. And what happens? Behold, all things are new. Or the new has come. Whereas our old heart was incapable or capable only of sin and idolatry, the new heart is now washed in Christ's blood and is being made pure and holy each day. In short, we must be born again. Not only to be with God, first and foremost, but to flee from idols. We must be born again. So we need to be present in the presence of God but our access now as new covenant followers of Jesus means that our access is now redefined 
redefines our aim. It redefines our aim. The more I study Leviticus, uh, it is becoming one of my favorite Old Testament books. And some of you are rolling your eyes at me right now because you tried the one-year plan and you got to Leviticus and you're like, forget it, James. <laughs> Amen, right? But I love, I'm loving Leviticus. Because Leviticus is, not, is less about rules and laws. And you're like, I see a lot of those in there, but hear me out. It is more about how God will usher the chosen people of God back into the presence of God to give them unhindered access to the Father. Leviticus is the peak of the mountain of how God is going to bring the people of God into the presence of God. So don't skip it in the one-year plan. Keep going, keep going. We struggle with access, don't we? Because we know what we think, right? We know our motivations. We know our thoughts. We know our record of wrong. But when you know you have access to the Father, you know that it has nothing to do with how good you're able to keep it together or how much you messed up last week. Things change. Your aim changes from how do I get better to I need to be in the presence of my Holy Father. There's a story um, of a soldier in, in the Civil War who at the, at the same day lost his brother and his father. And we tell this story at our Alpha course. Um, lost his brother and his father. And so he's, he feels the weight of this because he's got a mom and some sisters back home who are taking care of the farm, and he needs to go and, and be there for his mom and his sister. And so he goes up to, he, he, he lead, he's, he's in the Union Army, finds his way to the White House, doesn't even get towards the gate when he's like a shoot away. He's kicked out. He's told to leave. And so this soldier, this young soldier, is on a, a park bench just across the street from uh, the White House, as the story's told, and this young man, this young boy, I think he's about nine or ten years old, comes up to him and says, soldier, what's wrong? And the soldier opens up to the boy, tells him his dad and, and, and brother just died, and he needs to get back home, and he needs to talk to, to Abe. In my head, he says Abe. He probably said President Lincoln, right? But I just love just saying Abe, you know? Isn't that cool? I need to get to President Lincoln. I need to ask for his permission to leave the Union Army to go back home. And the boy says, come with me. And so he grabs his hand and he runs towards the, uh, the White House, straight through the gates, straight through the doors, past the chief of staff, past all the others, past the guards, into the Oval Office. And he opens the door wide open. You can picture the scene. There he is, President Lincoln with his primary generals, in, in his cabinet, and they're going over war plans, and, he, and President Lincoln looks over to the young man, and he smiles, and he grins, and he says, Todd, what can I do you for today? And Todd Lincoln looks at his father, Abraham Lincoln, and tells him the story of this soldier. And the president says, you're free to go. Go be home with your family. Access comes through the sun. Amen? Yeah. Access comes through the sun. 
access to the Father through the Son. It redefines our aim. The fact that we have access to God should consecrate our thoughts and redirect our hearts to holiness. It redirects our aim. The blast in verse 24, the memorial proclaimed, a blast of trumpets, a holy convocation, or a gathering, the blast signals the need to prepare for the presence of God. Now, back in, in, in the Ark of the Covenant days, the Ark of the Covenant, and we've talked about this before, but if, you, if you're not aware of what it is, it's a, it's a golden box, and it looks like a golden box, and over it stands uh, two massive cherubim, which cherubim are, are these massive, just glorious angels full of strength and might, and you know, this is who you want when you're on Street Fighter and you're playing, right? Uh, th these are the guys. And so they're over the, the, the Ark of the Covenant. And in the Ark of the Covenant is the Holy of Holies. This is where a part, not all, but a part of God's presence lived. And now the Holy of Holies in the presence of God was so strong, was so bright, was so mighty that if anyone went into the Holy of Holies uncovered, unveiled, you guys know what would happen? They would drop dead, right? And so what they would do is they would put rope on the priest. Um, and and uh, before that, they, they put up a curtain, which we know as the veil, in between where the priests would go and to, to make the sacrifices and then in between him and the Holy of Holies. And what they would do is with the priests is they would tie a rope on the priest with these little, you know what's crazy is they just found one of these golden bells. It still rings. I, I've been told that it might be the only artifact that we have still that, is, was, that entered into the Holy of Holies. That's cool. Fun fact. All right. So they, they had these golden bells on a rope, and they went in, and what would happen is when the priest would go to the mercy seat to sprinkle the lands that the people of God prepared for the presence of God to be forgiven of their sin, he'd go and he'd sprinkle the blood of the lamb on the, on the mercy seat. And just in case he got a glimpse of glory and dropped dead, uh, the, he'd have, a, have this rope and bells that would ring and they would know another one and they would bring him out. <laughs> They'd bring him out. And that same veil between the priest and the presence of God, at the blast, not of a trumpet this time, but of the Son of Man and the power of the cross was torn into two. And no longer do you and I have to tiptoe in the presence of God, amen? Because there's one mediator between God and man, and it's no longer a priest. It's no longer make this sacrifice happen and that sacrifice happen on top of that sacrifice. Make sure you do this. Make sure you do that. No, it's Jesus, perfect son of God, lamb of God who was slain, tore it in two with the reverberating power of the cross. Amen. And they told us in the New Testament, it says that the earth felt the shake when that thing tore into two. And now we have access, according to Hebrews 4, it says we can not only just access God, we can go with confidence to God. 
to draw near to the throne of grace that we might receive mercy and grace and help in our time of need. When we go to the Father, when we go to him through the Son and we access the Father, we're not going to the Father who says, uh, you did it again. Let's go and try again. We're going to the Father. We're accessing the Father. And immediately what we get the response is, I wanna, how can I bless you? Grace and mercy. When we have confidence that the Father hears our prayers, it redefines our aim for life. Access to the Father means I don't have to perform for God to hear me. I can just walk through the door that is Jesus Christ and be met with grace and a God who is ready to bless me. Isn't that incredible? Before Christ, the law makes our aim about behavior modification, but now in Christ, our aim is defined by our access. Before the priests would enter the Holy of Holies, they would prepare for the day of atonement by resting, by practicing Sabbath rest, as we see in verse 25. We hear this and we think it's easy for them to practice Sabbath rest because our modern calendar just doesn't fit in that sort of rhythm anymore. And so we have this sort of, as C.S. Lewis called it, this chronological snobbery. But think about, for them, what resting meant. They were in their fields tending to their crops, the blast of the trumpet sounds, they feel it, they hear it, they prepare for God's presence and they go and they rest and they make sacrifices. What's, what's a crop for them? Crops, food and income. Food and income. The barometer of your trust in Christ is read by how well you rest in Christ. God says to prepare for my presence, not by getting to work, but by resting in grace. Access means that when we rest, we enter into a new space characterized by grace. We enter into a new space characterized by grace. We don't just gain access for an occasional visit. This is where we live now. Acts 17, in him we live and move and have our being. And we rest daily knowing that I am accepted and he longs to be gracious to me. Isaiah 30, yet the Lord longs to be gracious to me. He's just waiting to be gracious to you. And third, what the Feast of Trumpets shows us not only is that we need to be present in the presence of God and that our newfound, new covenant access to the Father redefines our aim, but it also gives us worship that's right side up. Worship the right side up. The Samaritan woman, which is one of my all-time favorite stories in all of Scripture, Samaritan woman thought she understand worship but her understanding of worship was radically altered by her encounter with Jesus at the well. When he spoke words of life into her, when he showed her that he knew what was behind things and he still pursued her. Instead of seeking something from us, God offers something first. How we respond, how would we respond if Jesus wanted to alter your understanding of worship today? to turn it upside down, or for the Samaritan woman, to turn it right side up. We tend to put a lot of attention on what we get out of worship, don't we? I'm going for the music. 
I've said that too before, by the way. Ah, it's not really my style. I'm going to go to the church down the road. We come to worship hoping that God might give us something. And slowly we then accept just doing the churchy things, doing my devotions, coming casually on Sunday. We settle for a definition of worship that is self-centered and rooted in how he moves us. I think in many ways we have lost our hunger for glory. Church, what if we were a church every week hungry for glory? What if we were a church hungry for glory? The Old Testament ends in in this way, not with a jubilant celebration, but with a painful realization that all efforts to bring glory to God result in failure and condemnation. So if God is, is to have to bring these people into his presence to worship him with their heart and soul and mind and strength, he's gonna have to bring himself. And that's where the silence of the 400 years starts. And then another reverberating sound happens, but this time at the cry of a baby, amen, Jesus is born. It's an act of unfathomable love. Deity becomes dust. The maker becomes maligned. The creator becomes cursed. God comes in Christ to restore the relationship that we rejected in the garden and that we rejected day by day to learn that the greatest gift of God is is himself. Jesus is God's ultimate statement that he will provide a way for us to worship him. Jesus' life is the perfect life, the substitutionary death on the cross, physical resurrection, and glorious ascension assure once and for all that those who trust in him can be numbered among those who worship God. Incredible. What I love about this is the Old Testament, those 400 years of silence before the baby is born, before God became man in flesh, the Old Testament ends with a question mark. God, how will you do it? When will you do it? But the New Testament ends with a period. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. John in heaven On turning, I saw the seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son, a son of man, clothed with long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in the furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In the right hand, he held seven stars, and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword and the face was like the sun shining in full strength. And then John says, with all of his imperfect ways, he says, I fell at the feet as though I was dead, but he laid his right hand on me saying, fear not, I am the first and the last, the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys to death in Hades. This is King Jesus. And one day, as the Israelites prepared because of a trumpet blast, one day the final trumpet blast will come 
And as Paul wrote about it, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven and with a cry and a command and the voice of the archangel and the sound of the trumpet of God. At the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. Are you hungry for glory? Church, what if we were characterized by persistent preparation for God's presence? What if we were characterized by persistent preparation for God's presence? I want to be a church that is hungry for glory. Let's pray. Father, we are in awe of your word. It is true and it is authoritative for our lives. It shapes us and it molds us into the image of your son. And we thank you for that. We thank you, Lord, that we can come to you full access because of the son to the father in confidence to the throne of grace that you'll hear us. And so, Lord, would you continue to shape and mold us more into the image of your son? And Father, forgive us when we come into your presence casually. May we live for the last trumpet blast. Hungry for glory. In Jesus' name.